What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Born Made Podcast. Today, I have an incredibly special guest on the show. Her name is Kendall Toole. Uh, she is a leading Peloton instructor for a long time now. Uh, she is a brand new equity partner at X2 Performance. She is also doing incredible things in the world of mental health advocacy and has been for a long time. We also have dogs named Bowie together. We both have a dog named Bowie. <laughs> See, now I feel bad. I literally just had Bowie at grooming. So he's not next to me right now, which is like the strangest thing. I can't believe you have a Bowie. So I have a Bowie and he's actually a new dog. He's a little pup. Um, he's he's actually not a little pup. He's a big pup. He's a big boy. Um, but I, uh, I, I rescued him and did not know what I wanted to name him or what we were going to name him. But as soon as I got him in, a, in the car, Under Pressure started playing on the radio. And I just said, boom, that's it. It's Bowie. And he fits Bowie perfectly. So personality-wise, like a little cheeky, talkative, but a sweetheart. Very friendly. Is yours friendly? Insanely friendly. But he, he is, so he's almost eight months old. And he's about 70 pounds. He's a, an American bully. Come to find out, I had no idea. Uh, we did a DNA test, and he's like predominantly American bully, so he's gonna be a big old, big old doggy. Uh, but he is the fucking best. He is the fucking best, and he's the sweetest with my kids. He also happens to be an insane watchdog. Uh, like you know, sort of, I guess genetically, those dogs are just like down to protect. Anyway. Enough about our dogs. I want to get into your conversation. So real quick, Born or Made is a podcast that I've been doing for some time now. I have always been interested in the nature-nurture question, whether people are born to do what they do and crush it, or if they were made over time. And I like to get to the answer to that question at the end of the podcast, but the way we get there is through hearing your story. So I know that we don't have an enormous amount of time, so I want to hear your story from way, way back. I want to hear about your mental health and um, and where you're at now and where you were and how you got through that because fitness saved my life and I can only imagine that we share that quality together. I've been sober for 17 years and mental health is a massive part of my journey. And so let's have it. Kendall, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I really appreciate it. I think it's super exciting to get to chat. I love people that have gone through, essentially gone through hell and back. The people I tend to connect with, even the friends, the people that I partner with everything, they have this massive story of fight and of overcome and of this thing that I say all the time, like staying in the fight. And I, I don't know another way to put it. It just, it's like you keep moving forward. You keep progressing, even when you get knocked down from the words of my dad. Thank you, dad, for this one. And this is still our connecting point. Like he always taught me you get knocked down, but you don't let them knock you out and you keep going. And that's just the way that he's like, that's the way this family operates. That's the way that we operate. We're going to get through this. And starting off at the beginning, it just, I was always an intense kid to put it politely. I was very bossy, which I just think is great leadership abilities. But as a little girl, it was a lot. And, but I appreciate the fact like growing up, I was always allowed to have an opinion. I was the youngest in my family by quite a bit. So it was kind of like, I remember our first dog, we had a white German shepherd named Duke. I had a white dog named Duke too. FYI. Shut What? The, I swear okay, to God, he's on my arm. This is weird. <laughs> Look. Oh my God. So, no way. So this says the Duke right here. And then that is Duke. 
that's freaking me out because that actually looks like my Duke that I grew up with. You didn't have, you've never had a dog named Riley, have you? Not yet, but now I feel like I need to. Like maybe dog number two. Just tell me <laughs> what you've named your dogs because apparently we're on the same wavelength in some crazy universe. We're definitely on the same page. That's epic. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, great. I'll come to you for my dog name suggestions from here on out since we're aligned. But yeah, even like when we were getting our dog, I remember we went, I think I was four years old and we went to go and get this white German shepherd from this one breeder in California all for rescuing dogs. And at this point, my family, it was a little bit before the rescue craze. So lesson learned, but my dad wanted us to have a more of a protective dog because he was traveling so much. And so my mom was, he just wanted us to have, you know, an extra line of defense. And we went to go and pick up and select our dog. And my brother and my dad were adamant. It's Duke. It's Duke. It's Duke. And I'm in the backseat. I want to name him Lion King, not Simba. That would have made sense. No, Lion King. Like his name was going to be Lion King. Well, sure enough, we got there. We talked about it. I kind of was like, no, dad, I want to name him Lion King. His name is Lion King. I started calling him Lion King. To this day on his doggy certificate, his adoption certificate, it says Duke Lion King tool. And it's so funny now as, as an adult and in the phase of my life where a lot of my friends are you know, getting married and having kids and all this, I realized how powerful that was and what a representation that was about like the roots that I came from, because no matter what, when we were at the dinner table, we would always do family dinners. Everybody had an opinion. Even if my opinion was outlandish, it was the opinion of a four or five or six-year-old. It mattered. And I could speak my mind. And I look back now and I'm so grateful for how my parents have made that a through line in my life. And I think it's actually shaped so much of my confidence into being who I am today and being able to speak the way that I do and, and speak very honestly and authentically because I never was squelched because of that. So it kind of started there with parents who stoked my fire and allowed me to be the crazy, crazy, outlandish, loud person that I am. But where it really took a turn was my perfectionism started to come into play when I was in gymnastics when I was really young. And that turned into a lot of signs of OCD. I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder when I was 11. It's really funny, little things that I'm proud of today. Like I'm sitting here on my couch and I'm barefoot. I've been barefoot all day. When I was 11, I could not do anything barefoot. I had to wear socks. My feet had to be clean. I had these very, very intense rituals with my nighttime routine, with light switches, with you know what clothes I could wear, everything. And it got to the point where it was so debilitating. My parents were like, okay, honey, it's time to, you know, you need to go into therapy. So I remember I went to a great child psychologist, learned tools that I still use today. They're still part of my arsenal. I love a sand timer to focus on intrusive thoughts. What is that? So I love this. So you get a three minute sand timer, two or three minutes. And what you do just before is you tell yourself, all right, whenever you're, especially for me, and we'll get to this with what my diagnosis is now and what I deal with day to day, but especially when intrusive thoughts come in and you feel like they're taking over, you go ahead and you commit to yourself. You say, okay, I'm going to turn the sand timer over. And as long as the sand is falling, I am going to go full tilt into these thoughts. I'm going to think every single thought I can think I'm going to allow myself to go to that creepy, dark, scary place. But the rule is, is that once that sand is done, you're done. You already gave yourself the opportunity to let those thoughts exist. And now we're going to close the door on that. It gave me an opportunity to create the space for the feelings, to meet them where they were, to meet the thoughts where they were. And then it also helped me set a boundary about not going back there. It's like scratching the mosquito bite a little bit and then you put the X in it and you hope that it stops itching. Kind of the same concept. And so I still use that to this day when my anxiety gets very, very prevalent or intrusive thoughts. And it definitely has been a great tool. So I learned some great tricks then and some great things with therapy then. And 
you know, life continued, got into acting in my teen years, lived in California, SoCal, wonderful, crazy being around the industry, but also receiving so many no's and so many almost like almost had a role contracts on the table. My life's going to change. And then, Oh, nope. We gave it to that person. That's a superstar that we gave the offer to. They actually said, yes. So sorry. So there was a lot of these almost and what ifs and on the edge of something. And it always was met with no, that was a game changer for me because I always thought if you work hard enough, if you outwork everybody, if you outlast everybody, if you are a nicer person, like again, almost the OCD superstition, it'll work for you. You'll get what you want. That's just, it has to work this way. Well, continuing on going into college, go to USC dream school for film and for business. And just before I got in, I got my, this dream role in a movie. Everybody in the cast was superstars. One man won an Oscar for his role that he played in Winter's Bone. The two kids that were playing my siblings, both are super successful, like young kid actors that are now even bigger than they were then. And then you have like little old me who's in this cast that nobody knows who the hell I am, even though I've been, you know, working my ass off for this for years. We shot the movie. I was told my life was going to change. You're going to go to college for like six months and then your life's going to switch. We have all these meetings. Get ready. It's going to launch at Sundance, all this. To put it lightly, the premiere of the movie did not go as planned. The response, the reach wasn't there. There were issues in post-production and it kind of was and wasn't simultaneously. So in college, I just then threw myself into, okay, let me join a sorority. Let me distract myself. Maybe that's what I need to do. Let me join the cheer team. I ended up making the SC cheer squad, which was epic, but I did all these things to put off what was going on deeper. And the truth was, was like this dream, this concept of who I thought and who I had worked from the time I was 11 years old and who I thought I was going to be, it just wasn't going to pan out. And I was avoiding hitting that bottom and I was avoiding that realization. So come my senior year of college, to put it lightly, the shit hit the fan. I couldn't distract myself anymore. And I got to a point and at my worst, you know, and trigger warning for anybody listening, I want to be very respectful of people's experiences, but I got to a point where I was attempting suicide. So it was this moment of absolute darkness, absolute numbness. It's so hard to describe because I think back to these moments, it feels like a totally separate person, but I also know that that person will forever and will continue to live inside me. And that's a piece of me that I always have to accept. And so at that point, I remember being on the verge and I had an instinct. I checked my phone. My mom had tried calling me 14 times, whatever it was, mother's instinct, our connection, she knew. And I picked up the phone and she goes, what's wrong? And I said, I need you to come pick me up. Honestly, I didn't share how close I was until it probably took me two years to speak exactly of what happened that night and what almost happened that night. I remember she picked me up. It was November of my senior year of college. I'm about to graduate this incredible university. I have, mind you, here's the irony. I have straight A's. I'm getting essentially two degrees. I'm very high functioning. I have a job. I'm doing this. I know it. Like everything on the surface, you would have had no freaking clue. Even my roommates, like I had roommates at the time. They had no clue, but I hid it from everybody. I hid it from my parents. And I think that was the biggest thing because I'm so close to my family. That was like the big sign. I just want to make a mention here because it's the the similarities between what you went through in regards to your mental health and what is quote unquote sort of known as alcoholism are very, very similar, right? Like the illness of alcoholism is essentially a voice in your head that tells you you suck. And many mental illnesses struggle with this inner voice that is absolutely dying to take you out, dying to take you down. And, and there are solutions. And I just wanted to make that mention because so many people don't understand 
that mental illness is a, is a real thing and it expresses itself in many different ways. And alcoholism is one of them. And that's my experience. Obviously, you had your, you know, and I would love to hear what your diagnosis is now. But if you are struggling with alcoholism or with any sort of mental illness, it doesn't mean that everybody on the outside is going to know, you know, and if you hold it in and you keep it to yourself, the chances of your success in resolving or becoming part of the recovery story are slim to none. So I would highly recommend if you're listening fucking say something because you're looking at two people or listening to two people right now that have been to what you said earlier, hell and back and are fucking thriving. A hundred percent. Yes. I will tell you that. And to that person listening now too, I didn't think I would ever talk about this. And a year ago, something changed and it just was a day of like, nope, we're going here. But regardless, it's no one's story, but your own, but there's a beautiful thing and a beautiful gift in asking for help. And that's one thing I've always struggled with is not just muscling through it. And no, I should be able, I had a lot of expectations of myself to be able to handle things on my own. The best thing you can do for someone that you love is actually ask for their support is ask for their help. Because when you put the shoe on the other foot, and I know I'm that person that if someone needs me, I will drop what I'm doing and go. Like, I'm like, okay, what's up? We're going to fix this. We're going to get through this plan of attack. Let's get it done. To provide that same ability to someone. I know I feel like I'm sharing my love with someone when I do that allow people to do that for you. Everyone is deserving of that type of love in their life and that type of respect. And so being able to ask for that help, I cannot tell you, like I, it brought my brother and I closer because I needed his support to this day. Our relationship is incredible because now the shoe is on the other foot and others experiences. And even though he's older than me, he can come to me and say, Hey, like what the hell I need help. So it's the greatest way to live your life is to be in service of others, but also to allow people to be in service to you. And I think that's the thing we often forget about. Okay. Another dad quote, he's a plethora of good ones. Rick's a good one, but he always says, he's like, you have two hands for a reason. You have one to give and you have one to receive. And for so much of my life, I was giving with both. And I was wondering why I felt so empty. All right. So your mother hits you up and she just had some sort of intuition to reach out and you say, come pick me up. And then what? Full disclosure, this is the most interesting part, I think, about this story. And this is kind of the part that freaks me out a little bit, even to this day. All of that up until that point, I remember. When my mom came to pick me up, I do not remember that car ride home. I don't remember any of the next three weeks. And then the next two and a half, three months, very little recollection. When I came home, I struggled getting out of bed for two weeks, which as somebody who's like high performance, high functioning at all times, that was nuts. I didn't want to shower. Like I am a clean freak. My mom was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And apparently from her perspective, because I don't remember any of this, the first thing they did, they got me right into therapy, very intensive therapy. It was not inpatient, but we were very close to considering that option, depending on how I went through the first couple of weeks. She wrote to all my professors. I have such respect for my university. They were amazing. They absolutely said, you know what? Her grades are so high. We're not, don't worry about it. We're going to keep what our grade is right now. If we have any issues with transfer, whatever, it's fine. We'll figure it out once she's better. So mad respect to my university and my professors who are still friends to this day for providing the space and the kindness to do that. I think another point that I want to make too is most people have their first mental health moment or this inflection point between the ages of 17 and 25. And by most, I think the figure for NAMI, who I work with, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, I think it's somewhere in the 25% range. So that's one in four people that you know. It's going to hit them between 17 and 25, if not earlier. And I think the effects of social media, the effect of the world that we live in, 
the heaviness of pandemic, all these other things, it's probably going to sleep in a little bit, maybe sooner for this generation, I would think. But that's a pretty astounding number when you think, okay, that's your high schoolers and that's your college kids. And when you're in college, you're just figuring it out. Also, it's a space where part of the culture, depending on where you go, alcoholism is very real. There's a lot of party culture. There's a lot of things that make you distract. So I think it's important to be able to have that support system. And for a lot of people, it's the first time they're really away from home. So you don't feel that same level of connection. It can feel very isolating secretly. Again, if anybody out there is in those age ranges, like I'm with you, I've been there, my love to you, it's okay to ask for help. But also if you have kiddos or if you have people in your circle or your family that are in that age range, like have those conversations, keep those connections, do those check-ins. Even if they're stupid conversations, they actually can have a lot of impact. But that being said, the next three months, it's really a blur. I don't remember New Year's that year, which is so funny. I always have a chill New Year's. I'm not one to like go out and be nuts. It stresses me out, but I don't remember New Year's that year. But I do remember I moved back on campus. I moved into a studio apartment. It was the first time I, I started to understand the importance of curating my own space. And I meant that in so many ways. I meant that in terms of my friend group. I meant that in terms of where I was putting my energy. I really started getting into meditation through that process. I really started to like even design, like having rituals, like lighting my candles before I go to bed, all these little things. I started to learn about myself and it was very small steps, but I didn't realize what that foundation and groundwork would be and made it to graduation, graduated with honors. How that happened? I don't know. I just threw myself into school and then entered the real world and got into, I worked for a little bit. My mentor actually at the time in the process, a little bit before my mental health moment, I um, have an incredible mentor who's a director. He actually owns a boxing gym in Los Angeles and me being the smart ass self that I am hungry as hell. I remember I went up to him after class when he spoke my junior year and I said, Oh my God, I love what you do. How did you do it? Like motor mouth asking him a million questions, being a pain in the ass. And he looks at me and he goes, kid, how the fuck old are you? And I was like, I'm 20. He goes, dear God. He's like, okay, travel the world, go get your heart broken, lose all your money, get arrested. Like you need to live your life. What in the fuck story do you have to tell? And it was this aha moment. So I remember that summer, I went to Italy with school. I had the most incredible and most challenging part of my life. The guy I thought I loved in college broke up with me over text. That was a fun one. But I also, in this process, that night, me and my two girlfriends spent the weekend away from Rome and we were in a place called Monteroso, which if anybody has seen the movie Luca, it is based off that area. So there you go. But I remember in the middle of that breakup moment, I swear to God, I controlled the weather. And I went up on the roof in the middle of this insane, insane thunder and lightning storm. I knew you were going to say insane storm. Yeah. So if anybody takes my classes, they're always like, what's with the lightning bolts? What's with the lightning bolts? And I'm like, it's actually this. So I went up again to the, like this really high, incredible view. We were at this hotel that overlooked the Mediterranean. And I saw this flash of lightning to the point, I mean, it was close. It was probably, it was stupid for me to be up there, but I was. And all I knew was I was attracted to the calamity. Like that's exactly how I wasn't feeling inside. It was all the depression building up that I didn't know what the name of it was, but I knew this is how it feels. And so being in that storm, rain, wind, insanity, and this crack of lightning, I pulled my phone out. And I took a photo, not of the first one, but of the second one. And I still have the picture to this day. It is probably my most prized photo. It's blurry, but I know exactly what it is. Shit changed your life. It changed my life because it was the one moment it felt like a message of like, okay, there is clarity. There will be light. And that's why I love lightning because in a moment of like absolute darkness, calamity, storm, no end in sight, 
you need all of that. You need the heat, you need the cold, you need all of it. And then something is created out of nothing. It's like such an alchemy moment of like all of this darkness created something so bright, even if it's just for a second, that power is always there. And so that's why I wear a lightning bolt. That's why it's a symbol I like feel is part of me because that was kind of the wake up call. Fast forward, coming back to school, I thought I had it figured out, right? Okay. Like I feel better after Italy. And then as we know, with mental health, if you don't address it, it's not like a one-time fix. It's a continual effort. And so that's where my mental health started declining more and more and more and more because I realized, oh, even Italy or this moment or even that inflection point couldn't fix it. But I got into boxing right around that period because of this mentor. And because of this mentor is the reason I went to Italy. So it's funny how it all kind of builds upon itself. And boxing, especially when I got out of the intensive treatment and therapy I was doing, I started going to that gym and I will forever be grateful to this man for being such a champion, both in my career, but also for my mental health, even indirectly. And he looked at me and he goes, look, just come to the gym as much as you want. Essentially, he like fronted the bill for my private training. He just let me train with one of his top trainers. This dude trains pro boxers. Like I am nowhere near that. But it's one of those things where I was like, okay, I'm learning a sport. It was the only time my head would shut the hell up. I knew that that we were going to have a lot in common, but but we have an enormous amount in common. So when I got sober and I had my sort of lightning bolt moment, I was introduced to a mentor who I sort of considered like an older brother. I really needed someone like that in my life at that time because I was down and out and vulnerable. And like, I just, it, it was sort of the end of my road until this door opened. And the first thing he did was take me to a Muay Thai boxing gym. He brought me into this Muay Thai boxing academy in Chinatown in New York. And um, I looked around and I grew up in New York City in Manhattan and I always wanted to be a ninja when I was a little kid. You know, my, like I remember very <laughs> clearly. Ninja clear, turtle or ninja? Ninja, ninja. I, I, and, and like Bruce <laughs> Lee was like my guy. Oh my God, yeah. But because I was struggling for so long, like I just never had, you know, I played sports early on and then 12, 13 years old, I was like deep on my on my path to, to darkness. But, um, I walked into that gym and for some reason, you know, the guy that took me there, he was like, look, here's the deal. You're banged up and you still think that you're the fucking best thing since sliced bread. You need some humility in your life. And the guys that you're looking at in this room are going to kick your fucking ass. And you're going to come here every single day and you're going to train as hard as you can. And this is going to save your life. And I could honestly say I trained there for 12 years intensely, competed, the whole thing, right? And I learned arguably every positive skill set I have today in the ring, almost all of them, dignity, discipline, heart, commitment, get the fuck up. Never, ever, ever let anybody tell you you can't. You might not be the best, but you are always going to stand back up. Use your angles. There's always an out. Being able to relax in an intense environment, like if you can actually do that in the ring when there's somebody looking to take your head off and respond as opposed to react. And like, so, you know, I, it's so interesting how boxing came into your life at that moment and boxing came into my life at that moment. I have to make the mention that fitness did really save my life, you know, and it started with boxing and then a bunch of other things came into fruition. But I prescribe to friends who are struggling fitness. I think that it is an absolute solution. And it sounds like it, it set you on your path as well. Oh, completely. I mean, movement is so therapeutic. It's medicinal in many ways because essentially it's leveraging 
what we already have the ability to do. The metaphor of that, the metaphor of like being able to lift a weight that you never thought you could lift, being able to throw a combo or again, I love what you said. It's like response versus reaction. Always be on the offense. When you're on the ropes, you do need to know how to defend, but you're responding. You're not trying to protect yourself and roll up in a ball and run away. You're always still looking for the opportunity, but the only way you can see it is if you're not overwhelmed by it. Boxing started it through that. I then was back in therapy and did all that work and got diagnosed with anxiety and depression. And it's something I deal with to this day. People ask, how do you deal with it? You know, are you on medication? Yes, I am. Period. No different than, and my mom described it to me this way. She's like, honey, if you had high blood pressure, would you not take your blood pressure medication? Or if you were a diabetic and you needed to take insulin, would you not take it? Knowing that that could literally risk your life. Well, hell no, that's stupid. Exactly. Same thing. So not trying to push that on anybody, but if there's, I think the shame around that, the shame around what type of treatment will work for you, everybody is different in particular, but we have to stop eradicating the idea that, oh, because I need this tool, I should feel less than. So yeah, I was diagnosed and there was such a relief in knowing what it was. And then the research started, then the delving into it started, then the meeting it where it was at started and no different than being young and that sand timer, my life felt like I was in that sand timer now. And I think that's why I fell in love with boxing and fell in love with training. And then it was meeting it where it was at. It was saying, you know what? I'm not going to put it off and sweep it under a rug and pretend it's not there. This is part of me. This is part of my story. This is part of who I am. And I'm just going to face it head on. No different than I learned how to when there's another chick on the other corner of that ring that wants to pluck my head off. When I definitely get knocked down, there are days when it's really, really freaking hard to get back up. It gets challenging when I have a public career that I'm so grateful for, but I can't be down. Part of my job is performance. When those red lights go on, you're on. So a lot of the freedom in that was essentially just exposing what the truth is, like taking the mask off and saying, listen, I know you see me on this incredible platform and I'm very grateful I get to be a part of and facilitating, not even because it's not me doing it, but facilitating people's growth and helping them fall in love with fitness and movement and hopefully like showing them these tools. But I have my days too. And in fact, I think there's more power in us. And I say this all the time, like we are in this together. When I call someone's cadence and resistance in class, I'm doing the same damn cadence and resistance. I would never, ever think of sliding on you guys because I believe in, if I'm going to ask that of you, you need to expect that of me because that's the same respect. I think that we all deserve for the opponents in our heads, for the opponents that we face. And even sometimes like the challenges that life throws us. The opponent in the head, like I actually never really thought about that. Um, something that I think about um, when those, you know, son of a bitch shows up, I have a few tools that I, that I do. One is I wake up every single morning with some sort of untreated illness, mental illness, right? Like it's, it's there, it's prevalent. It's something that I wake up with. And so the first thing I do every single morning, and it sounds ridiculous, uh, it's the first thing I do. As soon as I know I'm awake, I open my eyes and I smile from ear to ear, shit eating grin, teeth like out, like full blown smile, 15 seconds. It's uncomfortable, but I beat it down. I beat down that untreated shit right away. And I know that if I could tackle it with optimism and positivity, because I know genuinely I am an optimistic and positive dude, it's just who I am. And that thing that's going on, that anxiety, that chest squeezing, that like uncomfortable, like, that's not me. It's part of me. It's not me. And so I beat it down with that smile. I smile until I start to feel warmth. And I genuinely do feel the warmth. And it's, it's, it happens, right? 
I do another thing that I've kind of coined the stop smile. So if I'm walking through the day and that son of a bitch shows up and starts to judge me and the anxiety is starting to like sort of the walls start to feel like they're getting a little tighter, even though I've been sitting in the same space for the whole fucking day. I close my eyes. I smile. The S-T-O-P stands for smile. And I smile until I start to feel like I can transition out of that negative space. So the T is for transition. The O is for I'm sitting there observing this thing happening. Like it's not, I'm not like faking it. I'm not like pretending. Like I'm genuinely, like if there was like, if someone was like, hey, you need to hang that picture on the wall. I'd be like, oh, okay, let me go get my tools. I'm going to take my hammer. I'm going to take my nail. I'm going to take the hook. I'm going to hang on. Like I do the same shit for the mental illness. And so I observe it happening. And then once I can observe it and feel good about it, sometimes it takes a minute, sometimes it takes five, sometimes it takes longer, sometimes it doesn't work, but most of the time it does, I then proceed for the P. And that stop smile shit, that tool really, really helps me. And then the last thing that I do is if that voice creeps up, I could say to myself, Mike, if that was not a voice in your head, if that was a person speaking to you the way that voice is speaking to you, how would you handle that? You'd knock their ass out. I think that's so interesting. I'm rereading, and I love this book, but I'm rereading The Untethered Soul. This is exactly that. The very beginning, the opening parts of it talk about you versus the roommate in your head and starting to understand that the whole concept of like subject versus object. Obviously, if we are hearing those thoughts in our head and we're hearing that roommate, that thing, whatever it is, talk, that's not actually us because we're listening to it. It's no different than like if there's a person on the street yelling crazy profanities, you know, in New York, it happens all the freaking time. You're like, oh, that person's nuts. Or that person is really going through something, bless them. But like, okay, that's not me. Same concept, just move it internal. So it was so interesting, even that concept of like, oh, okay. Listening to those thoughts and saying, I hear you, but that's not me. I'm going to select a different choice. And sometimes you're really freaking loud and you're really getting under my skin, but I am not going to own that that's my truth. I'm not going to own that that's my person and myself. Now, can I definitively tell you what the self is? No, and that's like a whole other esoteric, like we could have probably a conversation for five hours and get into all of that. But yeah, I agree. I think kind of the key in, in all of this in the mental health conversation for me has been creating those little wins. And like, for me, it's like creating those wins in what I put in my body and how I treat my body and how I treat my mind and creating those small rituals. And so it's been great to as I age, and I'm grateful for that, honestly, every year I'm like, oh, damn, yes, you added, feels like Girl Scouts, even though I got kicked out of brownies because I talked too much. That's a very true story. But it feels like you get another badge every time. And so it is, it's those little stuff when you don't listen to that voice in your head or you acknowledge, okay, like you smiling for 15 seconds. That's literally you saying like to that voice, like I am the captain now, this is my day. You can be here because I know you're always going to be here, but I'm not going to let you steer the ship. Like, that's not the way this is going to freaking happen. All right, listen, we, we don't have a lot of time. I want to talk about a, f- a few things before we split. First of all, you sound fucking amazing. And congratulations for like all the shit that you've put together. Um, really, it's inspirational. And we talked a lot about mental health. And I, and I think that that was purposefully. You are killing it in your life now. And you are leading the charge as one of the top Peloton instructors. But I want to talk about X2 because you just took your first real equity position in a company. You're a partner of an amazing company, X2 Performance. Just give us a little bit about that. So I'm really excited about it because of how it ties into who I am and what's a huge part of me. 
So I had this really cool opportunity. And you know, too, as someone who looks at fitness and treats fitness, it is your medicine. It is your therapy. It is so much a part of your person and myself too. So when it comes to supplementation, when it comes to energy drinks in particular, that's always felt like a four-letter word because of how much I've tried. I've seen what's in them. They honestly freak me out because I'm like, that's not natural. I can't describe that. And it would make me feel out of my skin. Like I would drink other energy drinks and I would feel like I was going off the rails. I'd feel like I wasn't having a panic attack because of I'm already predisposed to them because of how I am. So I was like, okay, this isn't going to work for me. I guess I just have to muscle through and barrel through. I was really excited though, when X2 came about and we started having a conversation and I tried and tested it for probably about six months through my classes, through my workouts, through my boxing. And I found like when I would drink this energy drink, one, I could describe everything that was in it. Two, it has a patent, it's science back, NSF's back. So um, the National Support Foundation, like- they're very aware of what is in big deal. Yeah. Huge deal to get that certification. So I was trying it out and I absolutely fell in love with it. It would lift me up, but it didn't lift me up where I felt like I wasn't in control. It didn't allow the other voice, the roommate to kind of steer, which can happen when I put something in my body, my system. And, you know, whether it be like too much sugar or certain foods that I know they taste real good, but I'm going to so like not feel great, like too much Mexican food or like Fried mozzarella sticks, which I'm sorry, your girl will eat fried cheese all day long. So freaking good. But it was this incredible like lift without any of the crash and without any of the concern about, oh my God, there's so much caffeine. There's not. Like there's less caffeine than a cup of coffee. So I've been taking the pre-workout consistently and I'm so proud to be a part of the brand because it's also a great opportunity to have a seat at a table as a woman in a space that has been very, very male dominated for a very long time. And you know, to my ladies out there to kind of like put an armor out of and say, Hey, like you're a badass. Like you deserve good energy too. Like I'm sure your wife with the kids, like it's a lot. Everybody deserves to be able to have that support and that fulfillment and that kind of extra lift. And so what's nice about it is it feels like a buddy and a friend without me having to ever be concerned about what's in its ingredients or how it would affect my overall health and fitness or my mental fitness. That's fucking awesome. I mean, look, at the end of the day, first of all, I just want to make a mention that NSF certification is insanely, insanely meticulous yes. and very, very difficult to accomplish for a co-packer manufacturer. There's only like 15 of them and there's like thousands and thousands of co-packers across the country. The only way to get into a professional sports locker room is actually to be NSF certified. So you just know that what's in there is A, nothing is tampered and on the ban list of any of these professional sports associations, and B, it's all really good stuff. And so, like, I, I love it. I've got to try X2. I've never actually tried it. I've got to get my hands on some. I know. i got to send you some. We'll get you to try it out. I honestly would love your opinion on it, too. But that's what's exciting is being a part of it, being also a shareholder in the company and having a stake in that. It's like, you know what? That business degree that I almost didn't get because life knocked me down. No, 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 no. Don't worry, mom and dad, I'm going to use that degree. It was not cheap, but, uh, but it's great to be able to like <laughs> leverage that. That's the other side too, but leverage the intellect that I'm ready to tap back into that. I'm ready to take control in the reins of my life in a way where it's like, you know what? 21 year old me almost didn't make it. So to be able to be at a point in my life where I'm helping other people, I'm doing what I love and I get to be a part of a company and developing my own future and my own business and my own livelihood moving forward and stuff that I believe in and getting to be exactly who I am and not having to put a mask on anymore is probably the most refreshing and greatest thing. And so it's exciting to just live as authentically and flawed and real as what life is. 
if you could talk to Kendall in her darkest moment right now, what would you say? You're worth so much more than this. I think there was such a moment of not feeling enough or worthy. And it was funny because it's not in a space where I ever grew up thinking I wasn't or I had so much support from my family, but it was from that roommate in my head. It was that narrative that was a part of my life and has been a part of my life. I was born with it. I will die with it. It's just the extra add-on I have in my brain because of the anxiety and depression. But that voice I thought for the longest time was me. I thought that was my true self. I didn't understand there was a separation. And I guess that would be the other thing I would say is like that voice is not the real you. And then again, my dad's words. And like, that was one of the clearest memories I have, especially from going through coming home and and going through the therapy process was, I think the only thing my dad felt comfortable saying at certain times, because it was, I do remember seeing how pained he was in that process. He would just say, okay, what do we do? And I, I would look at him and he goes, we get knocked down. We get back up. We don't get knocked out. Kendall, we are never knocked out. We are never knocked out. We are never knocked out. And it's so funny. It was so ingrained in my healing process, in my growth process, that that probably would be the thing that I would tell her back then too. Cause it's something I'd heard from when my dad would have the boxing gym down in the basement and he would be playing Rocky song. We'd be punching the bag and he got me little pink gloves, which I hated pink, but that's all that they made for little girls at that point in time. And we'd blast eye of the tiger and just get after that bag. I'm very grateful that she didn't take over and that voice didn't take over. Habits are everything. Habits will make us and habits will fucking break us. I'm actually launching a business called Creatures of Habit in the next few weeks that focus on habits. Um, Is there any habits that you do on a consistent basis? You said stack little wins early on. Um, Are there any habits that you can give us that we could just take home with us to implement into our lives? 100%. I will say it's something I'm still trying to tackle well. I know it's hard for a lot of us. Sleep hygiene, getting consistent sleep. What it does for your mental health, especially what it does for your physical recovery, we know this, but for the mental recovery is everything. So really doing your best to have consistent sleep. I am like a nutcase to the point, like my boyfriend laughs hysterically at my sleep process because in my room, there is a sound machine. There is some type of pillow spray. There is definitely like these Bose sleep headphones, more of his fault because he's kind of loud than me. Love him, but it's a lot. There is an eye mask. Like it is a ritual because sleep is so sacred. The other thing that I always do morning and night is gratitude journal. I love the smile thing. I might have to, I might have to steal that from you. I'll give you a little like copyright wink and nod, but from the smile to it's the same thing with the gratitude list. And so it's three things that I'm grateful for three things that I hope for during the day that I look forward to tackling and creating. And there's a great actually gratitude journal called the five minute journal. It said, what would make today great is one of the things in the morning. And it's such a great way to whether you want to call it manifestation or direction or intention to claim the day. And then at the end of the day, it's the same thing. What are three things you're grateful for in that day? And it's incredible how it's that reflection, but it's also that acknowledgement that then all of a sudden gratitude becomes a lot easier. You become grateful for, okay, not just the basic, yeah, my mom, my dad, I love my couch, my bed's comfortable. Okay, great, great. We'll start there. But then it starts to become very specific. You have, you remember that experience where that hilarious person in New York Like you were in a bodega and you laughed about like some crazy shit that happened on the street with a total stranger. And you know, you will never see that person again, but it was the most insane moment and you'll, we'll always remember it. And so will that person, it's those things. And you start to get really specific about life and you start to kind of remember how fucking awesome it is that we're here right now, because especially for people like us and a lot of people, because there's millions and millions and millions of us in the world, it's very easy to forget how incredible it is that we even get to be here. 
I would say that's definitely key too. Kendall, you are the fucking shit. When I think of you now, I'm going to think of that light in the darkness on a crazy thunderstorm that is like totally awe-inspiring. And you are that person. Like you are really shining. And I know the value that you brought to this podcast today and to the listeners. And, you know, I feel like you and I could probably talk for another five hours. Um, (laughs) I have to ask the last question. Do you, Kendall Tool, believe that you were born or made to crush it the way you do today? I was born with every sense of purpose for what I'm doing now, but I believe through the grit and the grind, whether divinely guided or by whatever it is, that's why I'm capable of crushing it today. I was born for the shit. That was such a good conversation. Kendall Tool, like when I think of her now, like all I can see is this like woman who has come out of adversity and has shown insane strength, insane fortitude, is a voice for the mental health community. Similar to me and so many other people that I am super close with, fitness can save lives and does every single day. If you are stressed out or you're dealing with depression, any sort of mental health, I can't tell you not to take your your meds because why wouldn't you take your meds if you're prescribed meds? There should be no shame around that. But a supplement to that, for sure. Get up, go outside, take a walk, take a run, go to the gym, move your body. Human beings were born to move our bodies. And over the last hundred years, we have become more and more sedentary, which has led us to a lot of issues that we're dealing with today, specifically in the mental health arena. I promise you, in my core, in my heart, in my soul, I would not be where I am today without movement. I would not be, let me repeat, I would not be anywhere close to where I am today without physical exertion five days to six days a week. That doesn't mean that I go absolute balls to the wall every single day I'm in the gym, but that means that I am putting in active energy and expressing some of the emotions that come up in my body in a positive way. I promise you it could change your life. And Kendall's an incredible example of that. I'm so stoked that I was able to have that conversation with her today. What an inspiring podcast, guys. Um, I really appreciate you all listening in to the Born and Made podcast. It just makes me so happy when I get to speak to people like Kendall and share her story with you all. It really is just, it's, it's my way of, of, of giving back in a way. So if you liked this podcast, specifically this podcast, this specific episode, and know anybody that's out there struggling, do me a favor, please pass this to your friends, pass it to your family, pass it to anybody. They don't have to be struggling or not. This is just an inspirational conversation. If you can hop over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast and follow us, give us a five-star rating and a review. It would mean the absolute world. As you know, I'm launching a brand called Creatures of Habit very soon. It would mean the world to me. I don't take sponsors on this podcast. I do this all myself. If you can pop over to Creatures of Habit, that's creatures with a K, creaturesofhabit.com and drop your email. I'll keep you updated with the business and, and, and when we launch. And then if you want to pop over to Creatures of Habit or at Creatures of Habit on Instagram and give us a follow there, that would mean the world to me as well. Guys, I love you. 
I appreciate you. Do me a favor. Move your fucking bodies. I curse a lot, and I'm sorry about that too. But it's passion, <laughs> and it's and it's honesty and authenticity. I love you guys. Thank you so so much. Until the next one. Peace.